You think, Mabel, you think you can get this one? You might be flying solo this morning. Unless, Sophie, you got to speak up back there, Sophie. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> what did the pig say on a really hot summer day? Huh? <sighs> I'm bacon. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's the riddle. Here's the riddle, all right? And I just, yeah, I'm, oh, that'll give it away. Boop, don't say that. When do you go at the red and stop at the green? When do you go at the red and stop at the green? Yes, when you're eating watermelon. Woohoo! Yes. Summer fruit is on the way. Thank you, Jesus. All right, you may be dismissed to Children's Church. Thanks for worshiping with us today. We love you lots. Well, I'm glad, grateful to be back with you guys after, it feels like forever ago, but um, a week we were spending up in Cascade, up at Trinity Pines. Pastors get to stay up there sometimes when there's no kids, so we got to hang out up there. And it was very restful and fun, as restful as a vacation can be with a four-year-old and a one-year-old who is very determined to kill himself about every three minutes or so. Um, like... Uh, toilet swimming is one of his favorite pastimes. Uh, pulling knives out of the dishwasher and trying to walk upright down park slides. Top three activities right now in our life. Uh, but we did spend some time up in Cascade, and it was so beautiful. Uh, God's creation, oh my goodness. The forest and the mountains and the clouds and the ponds and the critters we saw. We even saw a fox just trotting along like do-do-do-do-do. I live here, you don't type thing, right? And it's so breathtaking and it's so enormous that I want to just like wrap my arms around it and tuck it into my heart like a healing balm, you know? And I think the older I get, the more I appreciate uh, creation, like the wonder of it all. Um, on vacations in the past, we've mainly done like city stuff, like go see a city and see as much of it in as little time as possible, and it'll be so great, right? Like Seattle or Denver or Minneapolis or whatever. And, um, and I still love doing that, all the colors and the different people and the food and the sounds and whatever. But somewhere along the way, there has been a shift in my heart and my mind. Maybe it's children. I don't know. A shift after which I find myself drawn to simplicity in a different way. Simplicity of the mountains, of the mountain lakes, of the forest of evergreens, right? And who is this person? Who is this person? A paradigm shift has occurred. A major change in how I experience the world. Has that ever happened to you? Like a major paradigm shift, a change in how you see and experience the world? Ever happened? Well, lately these days, I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks because I have too many things to do with my hands, so I listen while I'm folding a thousand pieces of laundry or sanding cabinets in the basement or whatever. And I've re recently re finished listening to this book. Um, I can't remember what it's even called, Edge of Eternity or something. Um, anyway, it was about the period from, it's a historical fiction, from 1960 to 1989. Now, how many of you lived through that period? Right? Yeah. Okay. Now, I don't know if there is any other period in human history that has had quite as many paradigm shifts. Think of all the things that happened in that 29-year window. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement, the Kennedy assassinations, the MLK assassination, Vietnam, communism, the Berlin Wall, Cuba, all of that stuff, right? Coming back to you, right? And it is fascinating because the entire era was one paradigm shift after another. And for those of you that lived during that time, you probably remember, I have very blurry memories of the Berlin Wall. Like um, some pastor at my dad's church brought a chunk of it home, like in 1991 or something. And I remember seeing this chunk of concrete, like with all these spray paint on it, thinking, well, are you allowed to do that? Like spray walls like that? 
you know? I didn't understand at all the concept, but I do remember it very, very, very vaguely. And I can still see it in my mind. But in this book, there's this dramatic paradigm shift um, over and over and over again. But it's best displayed at the beginning and the end of the book. There's a young man, young black man. His name is George, George Jakes. And he is joining the civil rights movement. And he decides to participate in the Freedom Rides. You guys remember what that was? They hop on the bus, and their goal is to drive from the north to the south to help um, force states to integrate, right? To get rid of separate but equal, but to integrate. So he rides the freedom bus down, uh, down south. And along the way, they are attacked. The bus is attacked and actually set on fire with them in it. And he gets out all, you know, cut up from the glass or whatever. And as he's crawling to safety, a guy, this little white guy, swinging a crowbar comes and just smashes him down, breaks his arm into like a gazillion pieces. So for the rest of his life, he has this trauma, okay? And so he goes on to the rest of his life. He spends his entire life fighting for civil rights with the Kennedys and through the law, um, politics, and all that stuff. Now, skip ahead. So that's the very beginning of this extensively long book. Skip ahead. Like 40 years later, he is now an elected congressman in the Justice Department. He is in Congress in his office, and there's a knock, knock, knock at the door. And in comes this small, white, southern man. And it turns out this man was the one who had been swinging that crowbar 40 years ago. And to George's shock, the man repents and pleads with George to forgive him for his behavior. And he has come to realize how sinful his behavior was. He found the Lord. He was completely converted. And he had undergone this extraordinary paradigm shift, one from which he was swinging crowbars at black people for daring to ride a bus, to now coming in and shaking the hand of a black congressman and wanting to live in reconciliation with him. It was crazy, right? And then at the, you turn the page, and it's the very last event of the entire book, George goes and turns on the TV to watch Barack Obama's acceptance speech of his victory over McCain. Now, regardless of your politics, that's an extraordinary paradigm shift. Going from being set on fire in a bus to watching a black man accept the position of presidency, right? It's like going, it's such a significant shift. It's like going from thinking the world is flat and you could fall off at any minute to understanding that it is in fact a sphere as round as round could be. A paradigm shift. It changes how we see the world and how we function in that world, does it not? Now, in many ways, that is what the Easter experience was for Jesus' followers, a complete upheaval of all they thought they knew to be true. And in this post-resurrection world of the New Testament, Jesus' followers are having some major, uh, now what? moments, right? God has flipped the script by coming in the flesh, dying and rising for us and for our salvation. And so now, now what? Everything has changed. And so in the book of, book, in the book of Acts, you uh, see the church trying to navigate this brand new world, okay? The days and the weeks and the months after Jesus' resurrection and the ascension, the church gathers to pray and to tell each other the stories of Jesus. They receive the word. They break bread. They take care of each other. They try to live in communion as they're trying to be faithful to this testimony of this Jesus, right? And don't get me wrong, it's all in fits and starts, of course, with mess-ups and drama along the way. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? How they tried to follow after Jesus and uh, maybe told a little white lie and got struck dead, right? 
That's a, that's a lesson to read to your children at night, right? Um, or where the, 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 the Greek widows are getting mad because they think they're being neglected in the distribution of food. And so there's a, like a widow feud. It's very exciting, right? And so there is some drama as they are trying to figure out how to be the church. It ain't easy learning how to be the church in this post-resurrection world. But they're doing it. They are seeking to be faithful, to follow, to be faithful Jews, following after their rabbi, the Messiah. But little do they know another shift is coming. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 10. Okay? This baby church is plugging away, living into their new Jesus-shaped life when Acts chapter 10 happens. It's a weird encounter involving a bedsheet, some weird food, and a road trip. Okay? So as you're turning there, a little background on the characters. We're going to talk about Peter and Cornelius. Uh, Peter, head honcho disciple, leader of the church, undeniably Jewish, super, super faithful in practice, keeps the law, which includes the Jewish food laws and the holy days, fasting and keeping oneself pure from Gentiles, right? So hanging out with Gentiles, not on his radar, okay? Not on his radar. But then we have Cornelius, a Roman centurion, like a soldier type guy, who is described as a God-fearer. So he's not really a Jew because he hasn't converted, but he prays and he worships the Jewish God. Um, but he hasn't actually converted. So that means he doesn't follow the same practices as Peter. Like he eats like pigs and stuff, like bacon, like the joke. Um, he's a total outsider to the faith, a person who could actually corrupt a Jewish person by just sharing a meal with them. It's like he has Gentile cooties, basically. I think is the best way to describe it. Um, and that doesn't honestly sound all that different from the segregation story that I just mentioned. But so we have these two different people totally separated by generations of animosity, exclusion, and, and in some cases violence. And I think a helpful way for us to imagine this conflict is to think of the Middle East, right, uh, between the nation state of Israel and Palestine. And it's one of those conflicts that runs so deep and is rooted in so much painful history and conflict, conflicting narratives, that it's really hard for anyone to believe that there is even a possibility of reconciliation, right? The best we usually hope for is like an uneasy compromise where they stop shooting each other for a period of time. That's what we hope for, right? And although the parallel isn't exact, imagine this Jewish-Gentile conflict kind of in a similar way. Seemingly endless conflict, from all appearances irreconcilable, okay? And yet, and yet... There's always, always a yet, right? In this story, we're going to see something amazing. Now, I'm actually going to read it to you from the message this morning because it is a story, and I want you to hear it as a story, and, so, and I'm going to read the whole thing. So if you want to follow along on the screen, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen and uh, imagine. Listen for the details. Listen for repetition and themes and place yourself in the story. How would you feel? What would you think? All right? So hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 10 coming from the message. Now, there was a man named Cornelius who lived in Caesarea, captain of the Italian guard stationed there. He was a thoroughly good man, and he had led everyone in his house to live worshipfully before God and was always helping people in need and had the habit of prayer. One day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision. An angel of God, as real as his next door neighbor, came in and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared hard, wondering if he was seeing things, and then he said, What do you want, sir? Well, the angel said, your prayers and neighborly acts have been brought to God's attention. Here's what you're to do. Send men to Joppa to get Simon, the one everybody calls Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is down by the sea. So as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called his two servants and one particularly devout soldier from the guard. And he went over with them in detail everything that had just happened. And then he sent them off to Joppa. 
The next day, as the three travelers were approaching the town, Peter went out on the balcony to pray. It was about noon, and Peter got hungry and started thinking about lunch. While lunch was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the skies opened up, and something that looked like a huge blanket lowered by ropes at its four corners settled on the ground. Now, every kind of animal and reptile and bird you could think of was on it. Then a voice came, go to it, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, oh, no, Lord, I have never so much as even tasted food that's not kosher. The voice came a second time. If God says it's okay, it's okay. This happened three times, and then the blanket was pulled back up into the skies. As Peter, puzzled, sat there trying to figure out what it all meant, the men sent by Cornelius showed up at Simon's front door. They called in, asking if there was a Simon also called Peter staying there. Peter, lost in thought, didn't hear them, so the spirit whispered to him, three men are knocking at the door looking for you. Get down there and go with them. Don't ask any questions. I sent them to get you. So Peter went down and said to the men, I think I'm the man you're looking for. What's up? They said, Captain Cornelius, a God-fearing man, well known for his fair play, ask any Jew in this part of the country, was commanded by a holy angel to get you and bring you to his house so he could hear what you had to say. Peter invited them in and made them feel at home. The next morning, he got up and he went with them. Some of his friends from Joppa went along. And a day later, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and his relatives and close friends were waiting with him. The moment Peter came through the door, Cornelius was up on his feet greeting him and then down on his face worshiping him. Peter pulled him up and said, none of that. I'm a man and only a man, no different from you. Talking things over, they went into the house where Cornelius introduced Peter to everyone who had come. Peter addressed them. You know, I'm sure this is highly irregular. Jews just don't do this, visit and relax with people of another race. But God has shown me that no race is better than any other. So the minute I was sent for, I came, no questions asked, but I'd like to know why you sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago at this time, mid-afternoon, I was home praying, and suddenly there was a man right in front of me, flooding the room with light. He said, Cornelius, your prayers and neighborly acts have been brought to God's attention. I want you to send to Joppa to get Peter, the one called Peter. He's staying with Simon, this tanner down by the sea. And so I did it. I sent for you, and you've been good enough to come. And now we're all here in God's presence, ready to listen to whatever the master put in your heart to tell us. And all the pastors go, I didn't prepare. Peter fairly exploded with good news. It's God's truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and you're ready to do as he says, the door is open. The message he sent to the children of Israel that through Jesus Christ, everything is being put together again. Well, he's doing it everywhere among everyone. You know the story of what happened in Judea. It began in Galilee after John preached a total life change. Then Jesus arrived from Nazareth, anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, ready for action. He went through the country helping people and healing everyone who had been beaten down by the devil. He was able to do this all because God was with him. And we saw it all, saw it all. Everything he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem where they killed him, hung him from a cross. But in three days, God had him up, alive and out where he could be seen. Not everybody saw him. He wasn't put on public display. But witnesses had been carefully handpicked by God beforehand, us. 
We were the ones there to eat and drink with him after he came back from the dead. He commissioned us to announce this in public, to bear solemn witness that he is in fact the one whom God destined as judge of the living and the dead. But we're not alone in this. Our witness that he is the means to forgiveness of sins is backed up by the witness of the prophets. And no sooner were these words out of Peter's mouth than the Holy Spirit came on these listeners. The believing Jews who had come with Peter couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on an outsider, Gentiles. But there it was. They heard them speaking in tongues, heard them praising God. Then Peter said, do I hear any objections to baptizing these friends with water? They received the Holy Spirit exactly as we did. Hearing no objections, he ordered they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay on for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now what struck you as you heard that story? What captured your imagination uh, that was strange or powerful or confusing? The animals in the bedsheet is so weird. Can we just acknowledge that? That's weird. No questions asked. Uh, did, did you find it strange, I did, that God spoke so clearly to someone outside the Jewish faith? He sent a messenger to a Gentile, right? Not the norm in scripture. And then did you notice the messenger's behavior itself? Like the messengers left uh, Cornelius and came to Peter. They didn't come in the house. They actually stayed and waited for Peter outside the gate. They didn't even try to come in the house because they knew the Jewish laws of separation, right? And then, of course, there's Peter, triplicate refusal to do what God asked him to do. I think Peter's really good at doing bad things in threes. What do you think, right? And yet, in spite of that confusion, Peter finally obeys the word of the Lord without hesitation. No arguing to going to with Cornelius, no pointing out to God that he was suggesting something contrary to the rules. He just obeyed. And the result? Twofold. An entire household is converted, spirit and water baptism and all. And there is the introduction of a completely new framework for the gospel, one of total inclusion of the outsider. Talk about a major paradigm shift, right? And part of why I read that entire chapter to you for that is because of that whole paradigm shift thing. It's a big stinking deal. There has been a radical change happening in their underlying beliefs and theories. The way they perceive and understand and process the world around them has been flipped upside down, or maybe better stated, right side up, right? I remember one of the, maybe this the most memorable paradigm shifts of my life. My sophomore year of college, right afterward, one of my mentors gave me this book. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because you'll go out and read it and you'll be like, weird. You can ask me one-on-one if you'd like to. But I read this book and it had some stuff in it that was so shocking to me and yet spoke to my soul. I felt like as I was reading the book, He was writing it exactly what I was thinking, but couldn't put it into words. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, oh my word, I was thinking that. Am I allowed to think that? Oh, someone else thought that, right? And it helped me. In fact, it shook loose all of the doubts and questions I had about my faith. And I'm sitting in my bedroom and there's like my faith 
scattered on the floor, right? But that moment, provide that paradigm shift provided an opportunity to put things back together and arrive to a new place of faith and trust. And so that book combined with the Holy Spirit's movement in my life brought me to a place of radical change in understanding of faith and life and my vocation. Have you ever been there? Yes, I see some head shaking. Now that is happening to every single person in this chapter. Everybody is undergoing this crazy paradigm shift, something that they held to be absolutely unchangeable, non-negotiable, the exclusion of Gentiles, is being radically transformed. Consider Peter, born and raised as a faithful Jewish man, raised to follow the law, and a part of that was to follow these really strict food laws. And it was designed for Jews to be set apart from the rest of the world, right? Not because they were better than them, but to be set apart and say, we are God's chosen people, God is making us into a light of the nations, right? And we know they failed to do that because their life together became more about exclusion than it was about being a light. But so these food laws were a major problem for Jewish Christians in their relationships with Gentiles. Now, how many of you have been in a cross-cultural experience where you were fed some questionable food? Yes. And what do you do in a cross-cultural experience when someone gives you questionable food? You eat it. Because that is what you do, right? You eat it, you ask questions later, and you hope you don't die. That is what you do, right? Because that is how you build relationships and build trust, right? I have some stories there. Wow. Or you feed it to your husband. That is what you do. You just scoop it onto his plate. And yeah, hope for the best, right? But you think about it. Peter can't have interactions with these Gentiles because he can't reject food offered to him. That's rude and impolite. But at the same time, he'd be breaking all these laws. And so the best way to go about it, just keep separate, right? Don't even risk it. And yet, here sits Peter on the roof of some house, and God appears to be telling him that the former boundary lines no longer apply. The gate has been flung open, so to speak, and the outsiders are now being called in. And Peter's response? Well, as God has metaphorically thrown open the gates for the Gentiles by declaring them uh, the unclean clean, Peter literally throws open the gates and invites these guys in for fellowship and lodging and probably a meal, right? Talk about transformation. One commentator put it this way. He said, this was precisely the point of Peter's vision. God declared the unclean to be clean. Peter's vision regarding clean and unclean foods was followed by his witness to a Gentile. It is simply not possible to fully accept someone with whom you are unwilling to share the intimacy of table fellowship. Whoa. Did you hear that? It is, I have have an image, yeah. It is not possible to fully accept someone with whom you are unwilling to share in the intimacy of table fellowship. And Peter as prideful as we have seen him be in the Gospels, readily humbles himself to this new revelation of God and acknowledges this new world from the Lord by listening and obeying. It's powerful, isn't it? And the paradigm shift for Cornelius is certainly no less significant. Like, this guy's a God-fearer, but he knew his place. He knew that even though he treated Jewish people well and he shared their belief in God, that he was an outsider, total 
outsider. Imagine the courage it must have taken for him to extend that invitation to Peter. Like he had no reason to believe this Jew would treat him with hospitality. Imagine the joy when Peter shows up at the door. In spite of all the stuff he knew in his head about how Jews and Gentiles worked and interacted, Cornelius trusted that maybe, just maybe, God could do a transformative work, even on that scale. Now that, my friends, is the gospel. Reconciliation. Walls torn down. Boundaries of separation dissolved. Reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in turn, we become his agents of reconciliation in the world, right? And as we see in the story, the primary testimony of the gospel is not Peter's staunch separation from the stranger to show how holy he is, but rather it is his humility in receiving a new word from the Lord and opening the gates of his life and his heart to the stranger. That is the gospel, right? And so what does this message, this lengthy story, reveal about God to us? And how does it reveal the ways in which we are to join God's transformative work in reconciliation? Now, three things. I am not a three-point kind of preacher, but you got lucky today. Three points. You ready? There will be a quiz. First, this passage demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that transformation is initiated and led by the Spirit. There is no way that Peter just woke up one day and was like, yeah, you know what? Today would be a great day for Jewish Christians to just start including the Gentiles, completely in faith without requiring them to follow our laws. That sounds awesome. What do you say, James? James says, no, Peter, no way. That is not going to happen. It is only the power of the Spirit that can such a heart and life transformation make, right? No amount of arguing or pointing to Scripture, even citing Jesus' behavior, could have convinced Peter otherwise. Only the Spirit. And let's not forget the Holy Spirit at work in Cornelius, right? He was at work in his life. And as Cornelius sought after God in faithful prayer and caring for the poor, God spoke to him in a mighty way. And because Cornelius had that intimacy with God, whether he realized it or not, he trusted the voice of the Spirit and he extended that earth-shattering invitation to Peter, right? Neither Peter nor Cornelius could have conjured up this paradigm moment, right? This paradigm shift. Transformation is initiated and led by the Holy Spirit alone. So the question becomes, how do we get in on it? If it's the Holy Spirit's work, then we just hang out and watch it happen? Because we are Wesleyan, we recognize that God's way of working out that transformation is through us. We are God's method in the world. And that takes us to our second point. Point number two. You ready? Point number two. This passage demonstrates, yes, transformation is initiated by the Spirit, but it is put into action by us when we listen and obey. Did you hear that? Transformation is initiated and led by the Spirit, but it gets put into action by us when we listen and obey. When I was a little girl, my dad always, always used to say to me, Stephanie, Rachel, listen and obey. Usually with that, obey, you know? It was a little bit of a threat, right? And I little did I know that my dad was practicing something very Jewish at the time because in the Jewish tradition, um, they practice something, they recite something called the Shema. Have you heard that? 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the very first word of that is hear, shema. But the thing about it, and oh, Hebrew is so cool. That's why I wish I had a Jewish friend, so I could learn more about this stuff. Is that the word shema doesn't just mean hear. It also means obey. It's like a combined together, listen and obey. They're inextricably tied together. So if you say that you heard what someone asked you to do, but you do not obey, you didn't really hear it. And all the mothers said amen and amen, (laughs) right? You didn't really shema it. True listening results in obedience. And in our story, Peter and Cornelius both shamad really good because they listened to God, but they also did what he said. They acted in obedience to this new revelation immediately. No dawdling, no excuse making. They heard the word and then they acted on it. Bam. Right. And even though for Peter, obedience meant embracing humility and having to go explain to James, listen, James, for real, the spirit told me to, right? He obeyed. And even though Cornelius could mean potential embarrassing rejection by a Roman subject, no less, he obeyed anyway. Transformation occurs when we listen and when we obey. So the Holy Spirit initiates and leads us to these places of transformation. And we are brought into that transformational work when we listen and obey, when we faithfully shema, right? But what about that transformation itself, particularly in this story? And this is where the rubber meets the road for me, people, because this simple, not simplistic, but this simple truth about transformation is this. And it may seem obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. Transformation is possible. And it's not just possible. It is the will of heaven. Transformation manifested in reconciled relationships is the will of heaven. It is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. But I have to say, there have been periods in my life when, even though I would confess that I believe in this book with all my heart, and I do not doubt the truth of these great stories of transformation and reconciliation, there have been times in my life where I feel like both things were beyond the scope of reality. Have you ever been there? Like reconciliation, really? Okay. Transformation, you don't know him, right? I have borne witness to some seriously messed up marriages in which both parties wound each other over and over again until everybody's heart is bleeding on the carpet. I have been a part of churches where men have feuded for years, refusing to shake hands over a church project dispute 10 years prior. I have been verbally upbraided and had my vocation as a pastor questioned in front of my daughter by a saint of the church, not here, don't worry, uh, because I had the audacity to invite someone into church fellowship and membership before that person had passed some arbitrary arbitrary moral litmus test. I got a little, little spanking for that one. I've seen people fight tooth and nail to keep certain people groups out of the church unless they change their behavior first. Because apparently their motto is, change first, then hear the gospel and receive the love of Christ second, when you've cleaned up a bit. And when, where you sit in your pew, I'm pretty sure you can fill in the gaps 
of your own personal experiences with broken, seemingly irreconcilable relationships, or even corporate experiences in which people groups that you love are excluded because somebody built a wall, moral or otherwise. So yeah, there have been days when I have been pretty convinced that transformation and reconciliation in particular are not possible. Just come on back, Jesus. We're too far gone. We give up. And from an earthly perspective, that's right. It's not possible. From an earthly view, transformation is this false and empty hope. Reconciliation is a joke and resentment and unforgiveness rule the day. And it all seems like a big pile of dry bones. And yet, Paul says to us in Colossians chapter 3, So if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication and impurity and passion, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. These big ideas like transformation and reconciliation that feel so impossible to us are completely possible for God. When we trust the initiation and leading of the Holy Spirit, when we listen and obey to the voice of that self-same spirit, transformation is possible. Reconciliation is possible as we embrace our roles as agents of that reconciliation, right? As taste tests of the kingdom of God in a world that has a really bad taste in its mouth of bitterness and sourness, of unforgiveness and injustice. And so we participate in the kingdom of God work of transformation and reconciliation when we listen and when we obey, when we set our minds on, not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. And not just thinking and believing differently, but acting differently in accordance with the kingdom of God way of living. And so, Do you want to see dry bones come back to life? Do you want to see transformation in the lives of those around you and in yourself? Do you want to see long since dysfunctional and seemingly dead relationships restored to new life? Then listen and obey. Trust the Holy Spirit's movement. Look around your life and ask, am I listening? (laughs) Am I obeying? We know we are listening and obeying when our lives look more and more like Jesus every day and when relationships around us are being restored. If my life is full of messed up relationships and conflict and anger and I'm full of bitterness, then it's pretty clear that I'm missing something, that I'm not listening and obeying as I should. And so do we as a church, do we want to be a part of the Spirit's movement in the community? Do we want to see those spiritually starving, those rejected by the church because they don't pass that ethical litmus test, do we want to see them come to a saving knowledge of their belovedness in Jesus? Are we willing to watch for the movement of the Spirit, that subtle quiver of leaves as the Spirit blows? Are we willing to listen for that quiet voice? And are we willing to obey, even if it looks different than anything we could have or would have imagined? Are we courageously trusting 
that the same God that can bring dead men back to life and breathe new life into dry bones can bring transformation and reconciliation in our local body and in our community. Just imagine. This is the call of the gospel. A world turned upside down by the resurrection of King Jesus. This is the call to trust the initiative the leading of the Spirit, to respond by listening and obeying with our whole hearts, trusting that transformation and reconciliation are indeed possible, the will of heaven. This is the call to throw open the gates to those who hunger after God that they might find a place in our midst, a place to hear, a place to learn, a place to be loved and to be transformed. May it be so. And may this courageous spirit of radical hospitality be reborn first in you. Amen. We're going to close with the song that we sang earlier today, Your Love Awakens Me. That very first line of that sad song says, You have broken down the walls between us. By the cross, you have brought them down. And that is true, is it not? Because of what Christ has done, the walls that separated us from God, but also the walls that separate us one from the other, have been torn down by the gospel. Thanks be to God. Beloved, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church, may we shema this gospel word. May we listen and obey, following the Spirit's guidance boldly, that the gates might be thrown open to the lost. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.